I'm John Gibbons and this is Alchemy Radio, the home of the open mind. It's good to have your company, whether you've been a listener for quite a long time or maybe it's your first time tuning in. Thank you for doing so and we really hope you enjoy the show. We're free and on demand from iTunes and alchemyradio.net and you can follow us and join the Alchemy community on Facebook and Twitter. So don't be shy about saying hello. We love all your feedback. We exist thanks to your kind donations, so a big thank you indeed to everybody who does so via our website. We're completely non-profit and intend to stay that way. So, on to the show. Alchemy Radio. Today's topic is the Enneagram and our guest is Barry Ahern. Barry, how are things? Things are very fine. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on and I'm very much looking forward to this chat. And there's a question that I ask every guest that comes onto the show and you're no exception. So I'm going to ask you a little bit about your background and how you got from where you were to where you are now. Well, um, I I was a teacher uh, up to about 20 years ago in secondary school. And um, up to that point, that's what I did. And then I took leave of absence and did other things. And in the course of which I came across uh, a book that was handed to me called uh, The Enneagram, Understanding Yourself and Others by a woman called Helen Palmer. And um, I began to read it. And uh, I found it very, very interesting. And I began to look and identify what it what it did was it described different ways of seeing and, and thinking. So what, what she was doing was she was uh, describing the different ways that people see and experience the world. And different, there's nine, if you like, nine different personality styles with them. So when I read my own one, um, I was quite taken aback with both shock and horror because I had never seen any thing described that illustrated my internal world in that way. I had studied psychology in in college and over the years I also had done um, courses in counselling and been involved in in that kind of world uh, along with my teaching work. And uh, the psychology I took at college at that time uh, didn't resonate with me at all. I mean, a lot of it was just... uh, stuff that um i don't know we were just we were we were looking at behaviors of rats and dogs and and that kind of thing but there didn't seem to be very much about what motivated people to think and and see with what whatever they were going on about so because this book by helen palmer resonated so strongly with me i wrote off to see uh does she teach it or what does she do with it or whatever And um, I found out by accident that she was coming to Ireland. So when I uh, attended the course, it was there in Milltown Park, um, 1998. Mm -hmm. And there must have been about 150 to 200 people in the room. 
And what she did was she interviewed the exemplars of people with this, with the, each of the personality styles. There's nine in the model so far. Um, at least that's all that have been discovered so far. I mean, to me, it seems complete. I haven't met anybody who hasn't, if they give it a chance, found something that they could identify with in them. Um, so I was quite uh, excited by what I saw and with her way of handling the material. And uh, one of the quick, quickest decisions I made was to go and do some training. And the training I wanted to do was just for my own uh, experience. I didn't intend at all uh, staying with the material or working with it or whatever. But as time went on, I finished and graduated from a professional training program that they were running in the States that's still running. And uh, I just got involved with working with it, and it became uh, one of my passions. So that's that's where I'm coming from with it. Well, it's been a very interesting journey. We were speaking off air and uh, quite a journey for you. And let's delve in then to exactly what the Enneagram is and what it's all about. I mean, you've, you've briefly touched on it, nine kind of personality types. But let's go into the all-encompassing look before we kind of, I suppose, focus on what exactly those nine types are. Okay, so what it is, uh, as mentioned, is, is at least I suppose Helen Palmer describes it uh, as we are all born in a kind of, with a level of awareness uh, that I suppose... Eckhart Tolle in his writings would call, we're, we're aware of the power of now, of now, as it were. We're in the now. So if you look at small children, they're very much in the now. They're responding to things as they are. If they're hungry, they'll cry. If they're unpleasantly disturbed or whatever, they'll react and whatever. Mm. But they're looking around them. They're open to the world as, as, it, as it presents itself in. So they haven't been conditioned, as it were. They're in they're very conscious of a state that's often called non-duality. Yeah. There's no now, there's no next. There's just, just at least there's no now. Sorry, I take myself, take that back. There is no next and there's no past. Memory doesn't really fully kick in, for instance, until we're about seven or eight. And uh, the, the frontal cortex of the brain hasn't fully developed. So what we're presented with is raw, if you like, but very vulnerable child and uh, who is very excited by the world. But sooner or later, we get messages uh, from the environment that uh, cause us pain and we don't know how to deal with it. And these are registered in, if you like, our, our, um, our lower, the lower parts of the brain, but because our our frontal cortex, for example, being one part of the brain isn't fully developed, we can't understand it. We don't have the, the wherewithal to know why this is so. So, for example, you might have a child who sees a lovely dog or a pony across the other side of a, a very busy road. And because children get very excited and they're into pleasure and what pleases them, they may make an attempt just to run across the road. But for some reason or another, if they're with good caretakers, they might get hear a scream from mother or father, and they might, in their mind, experience, in, in, from their point of view, experience a very aggressive 
um, if you like, action to take them away from danger. Yeah. But the child doesn't see the danger. The child just sees whatever is delighting them. Now, that's a very simple example. But if you like, the, the child isn't aware of the, the human condition that we're, we're born into. And that, um, there, that, is a, that it is a limited world, <clears throat> excuse me, that it doesn't tolerate this experience of, of the now. Um, it does when we become fully mature and we have a challenge to go beyond the self, as it were. But So the child has to make up um, ways of understanding and ways of coping with the, the difficulties that they encounter as a child. And this goes for regardless of good parenting or whatever. You know, children have to be held back from a fire, uh, things like that. Um, there's, so they, they make up a strategy. And uh, the strategy, if you like, becomes part of their personality. So it's almost like, well, when I know I'm in danger, maybe one way of, of strategizing is to make sure I can look for the signals of danger mm. so that I can learn to predict what's going to happen next. So if that pattern becomes pronounced and it seems to serve them well, they can become one of these personality profiles. Very often we talk about them as a skeptical person. They begin to doubt that the world is friendly. They begin to doubt their own sense of self, their own authority or whatever. Now, another child from a similar pattern, you know, in, in, in my family, extended family circles, there's sets of twins, for example, and um, the, and I've observed them as they're, they're growing up, but even their parents will tell them that from a very early age, from their earliest weeks, the, the temperament was very different. So children had, obviously had this this capacity to respond to the environment in their own particular way. It's like, remember somebody saying, well, some of us are born as apples, some of us are peaches, some of us are pears, but we're all fruit and we're all necessary and we're all pleasurable. But we temperament to, to a certain extent is like that. So that this strategy that we adopt becomes a particular pattern of thinking, feeling and behaving. Now, you could, for instance, have, for instance, uh, say in a, in a set of twins, you could have by accident, they got locked in a cupboard and one child might adopt a take, well, oh, my parents uh, have cast me aside. It's, it's, you know, I'm not being seen anymore. While another child might adopt this pattern of the world is a very dangerous place, it's not safe. And that goes back to our, our highly sceptical person. Mm. So uh, how these come about, science is, is, is still out on it, whether it's nature and nurture. Um, most likely to me, but I've no scientific foundation, it, it's a combination of both. That we come in with a, a particular nature and then depending on our environment, we adopt a particular pattern of behaviour. So in a but, sense, it could be the case that we have some kind of genetic disposition to a, a, a particular um, stimulants, and then depending on society and our exposure to the environment, um, we either 
pick them up in a particular way or not. Is that kind of where you're coming from on it? It could be something like that, but that's not, to me, it's not scientific and it's not something I would, would uh, say this is, this is so. Yeah. I think there's a man, I might refer to his work, uh, a new, an interpersonal neurobiologist called Dan Siegel. Mm-hmm. He's written a book called The Mindful Brain, which is very popular, but uh, you would need to have a little bit of uh, understanding of physiology and neurology to, to read it. Some people tackle it. But he has written a book recently called Mind Sight, which illustrates much more, um, much easier the, what, what, the talk on the brain. And so he's questioning the whole thing of genetics and nature and nurture and that. But uh, again, it's, it's a work in progress. Yep. Uh, he has lots of talks on, on um, YouTube. Dan Siegel is his name, and he's worth it. But he's also studied the Enneagram. He's also had a look at the Enneagram. And what he's come up with has been very interesting too. So um, the, the history of it is, it's really, the books have only been published in the last 30 odd years because before that it was an oral tradition. Nobody knows exactly where it's come from. Some people say it could be two to 4,000 years old. But I think, uh, you know, in the early Christian times, there was, uh, for instance, there was a fellow going down around Evagrius of Pontus, and he was interviewing uh, nuns and priests who were contemplatives. And he was asking them that when you're in a place of prayer, what's the barrier between you and spiritual experience? Mm. And he interviewed these people and he documented it. The, the material is still around. And what they're illustrating is literally these patterns of behavior. So somebody, again, in prayer may be experiencing this doubtful mind. Oh, I'm questioning myself. I'm questioning my belief. Um, I get scared. I get angry. Uh, and these patterns are, are, are uh, illustrated there. But if you switch right into mo- to the modern era and you look at basically what human psychology is, is talking about and studying, it's, they're looking at what are the barriers that stand between myself and good human relations with others. And so if you like what the, the, this monk uh, if you like, discovered was the, exactly the same as, my, as psychologists are discovering, that the barriers that he discovered are basically the same, whether it's you're thinking in terms of spiritual experience or you're thinking about good human relationships, mm. that they're essentially the same. So, um, so, they, so it has been there somehow throughout the ages, there's a friend of mine at the moment looking at Dante. He wrote uh, the the Divine Comedy. Yeah. Because what he, he describes there, the 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 nine habits of the people and what happens to them. And I think her thesis, and we're going to be going to Florence to run a, a little conference on it for those people who would be interested. What he's describing is these patterns of behaviour, and that basically. The hell that we create is the hell we get through a lack of awareness of what we're doing. So if you like, the Enneagram, in a sense, is uh, a tool for allowing people to discover uh, a greater self, a greater level of emotional intelligence, 
intelligence or a, mo a greater sense of awareness and so that people can make more conscious decisions around what they're doing rather than be doing it from a kind of a conditioned self, a self that's kind of learned. So yeah. I suppose it, it's around this territory that the Enneagram deals with. You've mentioned that there are nine types or traits that are identified, and we will go into a little bit of depth on each of those. But uh, just to jump forward a little bit, Barry, um, if somebody has identified that they are a particular type or if there's a crossover between different, different types, what can they then do with this information or this awareness and knowledge? Does the Enneagram go into that side of things or is it just a way of identifying the self and then it's up to you to kind of figure out what to do with it afterwards? Yeah, well, uh, just before we go, I, I would be reluctant to, to go through the, the, the nine in a sense because they'd, to serve them properly, you'd need to spend a considerable amount of time um, on them. For instance, we do, and, and sometimes that could serve only to confuse people. I okay. think uh, sometimes, uh, you know, the, the information is out there, let people decide it. But in this short interview, it, it wouldn't be serving them right. And um, But for example, what do people do? Well, if I take one, we often call it the number one, there's one who is, is very focused on improving things, improving themselves and improving others around them. And so where 95%, for instance, when, when it comes to standards, are okay, if we reach a 95% level of um, accountability, this particular profile will focus on that 5% that's not quite right. Now, the 5% might be irritation over what somebody said are most likely irritation about the way they expressed something to somebody. They may not have thought of it as being very coherent or whatever. They may take time over writing an email, writing a letter to somebody. Is it expressed properly? But what they're very conscious of is having a very strong, critical sense of themselves. It's often called the inner critic. It's a highly developed superego that as soon as they, if you like, uh, come to some decision on something, it's almost like this inner critic is going to come in and say, that's not quite right. So they can be very, very hard on themselves. And they're very, very detailed orientated. And they spend a lot of time refining things in order to get it to that perfect uh, state. And they'd say that they rarely get there. So uh, what, what they do in the process is they shut down on a lot of their own emotions. They, they shut down on their own anger because they say, well, a good and a virtuous person is somebody who has everything under control. And so they can appear, they can look very controlled, very tight jaw or whatever. And we, how we know they're around very often is that they always have this eye for improvement and they want to do their best in that. But you see, this isn't always helpful because I've worked, for instance, in, in hospitals, um, doing work with teams and on leadership and that. And you would ask a, a group of clinic, clinicians and said, how important is it that you get 95% right? We know that obviously when drugs have to be prescribed and there's no room for anything but 100% uh, and more. Yeah. 
But for instance, if the laundry is uh, due to be delivered at noon and new beds made by 12.30, and that's the hospital routine, is it, say, in this particular area that you're working in, a clinical emergency if laundry is three hours late? And a lot of people, depending on the system, will say, no, we can cope with that. It's not a clinical emergency. But whereas a one will be very annoyed, very angry internally uh, if the laundry isn't delivered the minute after or the two minutes after or the three minutes. And the more, the longer it goes on, the angrier they become. And they will sit on that anger. Now, if necessary, they will say it to the person who is responsible because in their eyes, if we take on responsibility, we have to do it well. Uh, but if they are responsible, they really will be persecuted. It's a very persecutory sense of self inside that they, they adopt towards themselves if they don't get it right. So what, what, what benefit is that? Well, one of the benefits is what people very often express uh, initially, not always, but it's almost like, oh my God, I've never seen, I've never had this description of the inner workings of myself in such a vivid and um, in such a vivid way. And that itself brings a certain amount of freedom to it. I said, oh my, it's like some people, when you point out, well, there's millions of us walking around with this particular pattern. And it's in the articulation of this uh, that we become, develop a greater level of awareness. And it's, in, it, it's about developing this inner observer, this inner observer within ourselves, uh, which is neutral. And the, the quality of this inner observer is, is, is it's like a, this reflective self. Yes, I can reflect on what I did yesterday, or I was angry at that time, or I was irritated at that time, or whatever. But what, in applying that inner observer or that reflective self, to what you're doing, you can bring about change. Because, and one of the challenges for, for these people, the people, if you like, of, of an angry mind, or the perfectionists sometimes they're called, depending on the books you read, uh, the person, the challenge is to see, well, what can I do to lower this, uh, if, if you like, lower the effects of this inner critic? And one of the things they do is just gradually reduce standards. It's not about compromising or anything, but that it's, it's coming to realization that everything has a perfection in itself. That uh, there is a certain level of tidiness, for example, that's okay. But the, the, the one, this perfectionist type, may spend a whole evening being irritated by uh, a picture that's hanging crooked that nobody else will, will match. So it's not about disowning who they are. It's not about being somebody other than you, you are, but it's about bringing the, the charism out, but knowing it's, it's like a double-edged sword. It's knowing when to use it and when not to use it. So essentially what we could be looking at here then is a template or a method for identifying the root of our personalities, our ego fixations, whatever it might be, as opposed to always focusing on the symptoms, which is not really going to get us anywhere if, if we want to be able to kind of become more aware. Yeah, it's like you do, it's almost like you need to uh, adopt 
some sort of a, a technology or a technique in order to deal with that. And one of them is just to, to start paying attention to what you're paying attention to. Now that sounds very, very hard. Mm. But, but that's very different to unconsciously operating, uh, which, which is where you're absolutely oblivious as to what you're actually doing. So, uh, for instance, the, say the clinician who comes in and notices the laundry, the, giving that example, the laundry is being delivered five minutes, ten minutes late, variable, could d decide to be hanging on to this fact that somebody isn't there at noon on the dot. And if people are going to do their work, they live up to their expectations. And if the contract is for noon, that's when it's to be met. Otherwise, it's broken. And they could be spending all their time just getting very... I mean, I know this is a very simplistic uh, example. And I want to apologize to all people who identify with ones. Because <laughs> not every one is going to get irritated by the same things. We are all very, very different. It's not a, a stereotyping system. So what will bother one perfectionist type will not bother another person. You know, so what one of the, if you like, the downsides of the Enneagram of people who don't know it very well is they suddenly look on it as a stereotyping system and say that everybody, so they decide that every, every type one who... Uh, can't tolerate lateness in the delivery of a, a contract, and that's not necessarily so. But it depends on what's of concern to them. But getting back to the example of the one in a clinical setting who notices this delivery isn't on time, they spend a lot of time getting very, very irritated with themselves, very, very angry. And they could also be um, angry with other people. And um, if if, and, and it's until they start noticing, yes, I'm getting angry. Can I relax into that? Let it go. And that look at the broader picture, which is that it, it is okay for people at times to be late. Uh, so it's, it's this gradual uh, awareness. So it's, it's formed on the premises and the, 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 if you like, the neurosciences have come up with interesting material on this. It's around you, what we pay attention to is where our energy will go. Yeah. So if the dog is barking outside, we're going to pay attention to the dog. So if you have some, suddenly hear a very loud knocking on, the, on your door outside, your attention is going to switch away from this interview. <laughs> yeah. So if you like, each of us have this personality style, which is like this habit that we are working uh, to obliviously. Uh, we're, we're walking around asleep to ourselves. And the engram is, is one method of, of just becoming more awake, in a sense. So that our energy will follow what we pay attention to. In order to change that, we have to start self-observing. Uh, so it's like, okay, there's somebody banging outside the door, but I'm at this interview. So we have to do... We have to form, if you like, get into the habit of doing that because doing that never becomes habitual. The, the, the personality type or the pattern is very habitual. It's our brains, and again, the neurosciences will, say, will tell us this, our brains are literally hardwired into uh, repeating these patterns of thinking, feeling, and behaving all the time.
So the way out of it is to pay attention to what, what, what these patterns are about and seeing if I can breathe and let them go, let relax and come back to the moment. And there's enough data and literature on, on returning to the power of now. I think what Eckhart Tolle is talking about very succinctly is the way we get locked up in our minds around things. Byron Katie is another person I'd highly recommend it for people to watch about working on these thought patterns. And you don't have to be working on the Enneagram. What the Enneagram specifically does is give you an illustration of, of, of where these drives and these motivations are coming from. And I think therein lies the problem for so many people in that while we're all aware of the conscious versus the subconscious to a certain degree, actually delving into the subconscious and managing to identify what's actually going on there uh, when it's not presented right in front of us in an obvious way is hugely challenging for most people. So how do people identify with the characteristic roles and how do they then learn to actually become more aware and to put it into practice in daily life? Because we can see from, from what you're saying there, Barry, I can immediately see the benefits of being able to identify with a particular role. Or You've mentioned stereotypes. They're not stereotypes, and I can see how they're not. Um, so if we can identify some of what's going on in our own subconscious, how can we then work with that? So A, how do we identify with it? And then B, how do we work with it to benefit ourselves and our lives? Well, I think, uh, John, it goes back to you have to develop some sort of practice. I mean, for some people, uh, NLP nowadays, for instance, will give plenty of ideas. There are lots of techniques uh, and that around. But I think to this, this number one is just to make it a habit, keep a diary or something of noticing uh, when I did get irritated and angry and questioning, well, was it necessary? Uh, another way, obviously, is, is, is form some form of practice, um, where, which involves breathing, whether it's meditation or whatever. I think we have to do that. And I think we're very resistant. Uh, I, I, this isn't a criticism, but I think as human beings, we're very resistant because we're so hardwired into dealing with this this material which happens in early childhood and this has nothing got to do with the the um the enneagram per se this is just the whole of the way our psyches operate mm. but i think uh we are living in an age and dan siegel says this where we are being bombarded by um stimuli all over the place and he would say that when this happens that um, if you like, our our brains become um, you know overstimulated and they begin to to shut down, you know, and um, because of this, if you like, compactness, our brain, be, our, our neural system be, just become so compacted, we shut down and we we really become oblivious to what's going around us. But they will also point out, the neuroscientists, that there's a capacity in the brain for the we, this greater universal self. Mm. You know, it's, you can see this, you know, in, in we have in Ireland a, a great sympathy, if you like, towards people who are suffering in the third world. Like per head of population, we give very generously to that. And I think this is perhaps from our own experience of, um, ex that we've had from either parents or grandparents 
who came up in harder times than we had. And of course, the, the memory of the famine, perhaps, that we know what, what it was like and what has happened to the country, what happens in the country when people don't have enough to eat. And I think this is, this is where we, as a race or as individuals, we can identify that, yes, these people are our brothers and our sisters. There is this capacity in the brain, literally, that, that can be identified, which is around the we. But we're very much living in a world where it's, it's if you like, this sense of self that's being overdeveloped is this, or this sense of identity is the me, you know, it's about me. And a lot of this is, if you like, from this constant stimulation, you know, we're looking, even the word selfie has crept into, uh, into modern vocabulary, which is all about myself in the context of whoever's around me. But it's interesting that, that, the, the, that the, the word selfie has crept in. And this shows us how far we've got in developing, if you like, the we and lost sight of the, of the uh, how far we've come in developing the we, uh, sorry, developing the me as opposed to the we. Mm. Now, and this, this development of an identity around a me results in us feeling separate from other people, you know, that, that it's uh, this separateness uh, and because we seem to have lost this connection with the we, for instance, there's a lot about climate change going on, on, on at the moment. And one of it is results from our sense that we can use the universe as a trash can. You know, I can throw things away and use them and I don't have to, you know, they're, they're infinite resources, which there aren't. And um, it's not until we start bringing about any change uh, that we develop this sense of the of the we this globalized that every that we're interrelated and that we're interdependent and that you know our brain's potent uh, propensity to believe that we are separate is basically a delusion and uh, the brain will is telling us well we're confined to the boundaries of our skin but in fact, this, this other part of ourselves, if it's developed, is that we are all interdependent and interconnected. And uh, the challenge is to realize that, that we're all we're all on this planet and we're all, if you like, interdependent and interrelated and all the rest. So we've, we've you know, if you like, the Dalai Lama has been saying for years that war is an out-of-date concept. And it's the concepts that are running in our minds that are very limiting, uh, that hold us back from this sense of uh, self that can embrace the we. It appears to me that there is a huge cognitive, collective cognitive dissonance with regard to any kind of change um, of thinking or awareness or um, self-exploration. Because we're in an age now where the information is easier than it ever has been to access and many people are reading and examining spiritual concepts as opposed to, to the material world on a scale that I don't think has ever been, been done, certainly in modern times, to my knowledge. Yet, it almost seems to be as a form of entertainment as opposed to people seeing it as a personal challenge that they would like to delve deeper into. And on a personal level, I think that's quite a frustration because 
I think if people knew what to do with the information and the knowledge that they seem quite keen to acquire, there would be some kind of all-encompassing change on a spiritual level as opposed to the material world where we see advances in technology all the time and it's the latest iPhone this and it's the latest Wi-Fi that or whatever it might be. And I think there is a huge amount of cognitive dissonance in that people, if something is inconvenient to their existing paradigm or their method of programming, well then they will prefer to cast that aside even when faced with the truth. It could stare them in the face and it still is invisible. Would you have any kind of thoughts or a comment on that, Barry? Well, I'm not an expert in this. I mean, my specialty is as a, if you like, a humble uh, Enneagram teacher. So I don't really, I mean, I've thought, plenty of thoughts about it as, as people as all of us will do. But I think, you know, you're right about that. We have access to an enormous amount of information. And, um, but I would go back to the, to the piece around, we have to literally be able to stand, stand back and reflect. And if our minds are so cluttered up with uh, data that we haven't reflected on, we're going to get stuck in this me identity, mm. which is going to look for this constant pleasure, whether it's from ideas or whatever. Ideas don't give pleasure. <laughs> I mean, they're exciting, but an idea has to have something, some connection with, 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 if you like, our emotions and our instincts. So, for instance, the Enneagram illustrates three levels of intelligence. There's the intelligence of the mind. Uh, there's the intelligence of the heart. And there's the intelligence of the body. And uh, if you like, the neurosciences, again, the Enneagram is saying this, are coming up with this, this sense. So if, if, if we want to make an integrated decision, we have to use all three. So if you like, we in the West have become very cerebral in that sense, and we've lost sense of, well, what are the emotions? What's our empathy about? And what about our bodies, our visceral uh, perception of the world and that kind of thing. So that there is a part in the Enneagram that illustrates that, that kind of thing. So for instance, three of the Enneagram styles are identified with head-based uh, issues. So for example, we use our heads to, to connect data, to gather information. We use uh, our heads to remember what's happened and we use our heads, for instance, to plan future uh, occurrences or whatever. But um, the, the, the dilemma for a lot of head people or head-based people are is that they, they're basically rooted in a fear. They need to know things in advance when there is nothing. We can't know what's going to happen. The ceiling could fall down in, in, in the next moment, but there's nothing we can do about it. Yeah. Life is unpredictable. All we have is the now. So likewise, I don't, I don't give lectures per se. In fact, this, I'm, I'm resistant to speaking at length uh, about the Enneagram because I like a lot of interaction with people. Sure, yeah. Um, but I was talking about the three centers, so I better just finish it before yeah. I launch back to why I don't like <laughs> lecturing per se. <laughs> but if you like... So we looked at head-centered people who are basically looking at what we use our heads for insight, understanding, gathering information and that. Now the heart, there are three of the types uh, involved, if you like, they give a priority to 
the heart felt uh, emotions. So they're interested in image, compassion, personal importance, you know, how am I in relation to you? Am I accepted? Whatever. And they need to get a sense of, a, of autonomy around relationships and personal value and image and that. And then there's people with uh, this body. Uh, three of the types are very, if you like, centered in the body, which is around getting a visceral perception of the world via the, the visceral body. And so instinct, will, power, strength, helplessness, justice, sexuality, humor, that kind of thing. And doing things is, is important. So if you're buying a house, for instance, uh, if you obviously we use our minds to make decisions about finance and planning, uh, you know, when we can move and things like that. The heart intelligence will tell us, you know, is it a nice neighborhood? Are people nice? Do, do I think I can, you know, relate to the community in this area? And then, you know, the, the body intelligence will look at, well, the structure of the house, how it's held together. It's like the, it's like the, the whole structure of, of the plan, as it were. Is it, is it the right place? Is it the right place for me to be? Is it the right place for a house to be in and so on? So these intelligences are operated. So in all the nine types, we have a bias towards one of them, and that in itself is limiting. So the, if you like, we have a huge bias. We were talking earlier a minute ago around all the information we're being flooded with at the moment, and we're using our minds in order to sort it out. Uh, but we're not questioning uh, very often. We're not standing back, questioning it, and, and developing, if you like, our reflective practices. But uh, then stepping forward to where I was, I, the reason I got the cough is I don't, I don't, I really like uh, people to engage with the material and uh, the approach I would take and the approach I've been taking when uh, I've just discovered in recent years, it's, it's very like uh, Socrates' approach. Uh, I'm not calling myself by any means a so, uh, Socratic or Socrates, although I might be a little Socratic. <laughs> Socrates didn't like to write anything down because he felt that you find the truth in relationship with others and through dialogue and in a supportive if, environment, in a sense, people can find the truth. And once you found the truth and you try and write down what that is, you've lost it because the truth can only be experienced. You only learn things. You, 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 you know things through experience. So just dealing with data all the time in a mental way isn't necessarily going to use, bring you to the truth. Uh, you really have to find the truth in dialogue with, with, with others. And this, again, develops on what we were talking about, the we. So um, what we do with the Enneagram is we basically engage in that kind of, psycho uh, kind of psycho Socratic dialogue. So, for instance, if somebody identifies with a particular type, one of the, you know, that they suddenly notice, gosh, I'm judging myself all the time, constantly this is going on, we just dialogue about it, and it's in the awareness of it that people, and in this dialogue, that people develop a level of awareness and a, a level of reflection about themselves. And that, that will ultimately set us on the path to just become 
becoming more better self-observers and when we become better self-observers, this self doesn't take the, the same dominance that it had before when we were working on automatic. And so that room for the we uh, identity comes in, the we that we're all belonging to this. So it's very humbling. I've interviewed many, many hundreds of people who've identified all these particular types. And it's very humbling when you see five or six people all who share a similar pattern of behavior and thinking and feeling, uh, share their stories in their own particular way. You can just see the universality of the human condition, the universality of, of human suffering, and the extraordinary courage and inspirational way people deal with their lives. So getting back to your question, how do we do this? We have to start looking at ourselves. The only person we can change is ourselves. So there's nothing we can do, really. We, can, we, we know, for instance, wars have been taking place uh, all summer, and they're very distressing, but there is nothing we can actually do to rectify that. But what we can do is ask the question, what can I, as an individual, and that's a practical way, Rather than getting distressed about the wars, which is only going to distress me, it's going to do nobody any good. What practically can I do in my own, make my own small step? So that we get bombarded by, if you like, a lot of information from a lot of sources and it numbs us out. The brain just becomes compacted and we, we just still stay in this we position. Mm. And one observation then, Barry, the contradiction, or at the very least the paradox, or an apparent contradiction that seems to exist just to me as I'm observing here, when we look at the organic flow of consciousness and that's what we're trying to get towards with awareness and with the Enneagram, and then on the other side of it, we have boxes and categories and paradigm, and it, is a, it does seem to be quite a categoric-based system. Is that a contradiction, or how would you address the... Um, question because it does appear to me that in trying to shatter a paradigm we're creating another one well i suppose we have this capacity to categorize and what i often use i often use if i'm introducing the enneagram a sheet of music mm -hmm. music has since people learn to write it down write symbols down and i'd have uh, i had a very interesting experience with a little niece of mine she must have been about five and uh, we were looking at the piano. I'm not a piano teacher, but I know how to play the odd tune. And I was, we were looking at little simple uh, piano things that she tweaked on to this sense that what I'm reading in, on a music sheet is a language. And for, for some reason or other day, she started copying these notes down on a piece of paper just uh, out of her own interest. And I said, well, to her, well, why don't you write your own notes down or your own symbols down for the tunes that you might have in your head? Right. And this child of five started doing that. It was just, to me, it was miraculous. It was just amazing that somehow I could see her mind thinking, gosh, when I see something written here, it, it, it invites me to play a sound. Now, if I hold up a sheet of music to people and I say, this is Beethoven's or U2's latest song, it will mean nothing to the people in the room unless they can perhaps read music. 
But if I play the music, they all know exactly what's, what it's about and they don't have to understand the architecture. So there's a translation there. There's, a, there's an experience. People have an experience of it. So what we, what we seem to do as human beings, we try to symbolize either through language or whatever or categorize ways in which we can understand the way we go about our lives. So in a sense, the Enneagram is, um, if you like, universally following this pattern by categorizing particular patterns. But every single person who is a particular type, one of these Enneagram types, is very unique and very different. Nobody is absolutely the same. Like no apple is ever the same as the next one, Mm. even though we try in modern sciences to make them, unfortunately, but we know what will happen to that if we try to make everything the same. The great, the... the, thing that we have to twig on to is that the, the planet, as we and as human beings do, it's constantly evolving. We're in a constantly evolving process. So what the Enneagram has come up with is some way of identifying patterns of behavior, but everyone is basically very different. We're much more than this category. The category is only a, a very small aspect in the greater scheme of things, but it's a help. It's a little tool which you can uh, use to develop a practice of self-reflection. There are lots of them out there, lots of different tools, and uh, the Enneagram won't suit everybody. But I think, for me, it's obviously my passion because it is a, it's a, it is a, it is a great door opener for people who want to take the leap into it, but some people will come and try it, and some people will, and, and they say, very interesting, you may never see them again, while others come and they study it for years. And in my experience, it transcends all boundaries. I've, I've, I've worked with people in addiction centers. I've worked with uh, leaders of industry, with academics. I've had psychiatrists come along uh, and listen to uh, Enneagram panels with a view of the, the study. There's a lot being written about it in, by uh, psychiatrists. And, um, you know, it's, it's a kind of an accessible model. It's just one of these tools that, that uh, people will take to uh, or something if, the, if it suits them. And is there any crossover then at all with astrology and the signs of the zodiac? Because, again, that, that's another kind of a, a categorized base system that a lot of people use. Well, I, know, I don't know anything about astrology. I mean, obviously, I know Aquarius and that thing, but that's about the extent of my knowledge about astrology. Right. I've never really heard anybody, you know, I've met a lot of people giving a talk on uh, astrology and the Enneagram. There's not that I know of, you know. Okay, fantastic. So for somebody who might be interested in exploring themselves further and learning more about the Enneagram, what would the first step be? Because I know it can be very, very daunting when presented with a new model or a new system and there is so much reliance on the self and, of course, the, the work and the hours have to be put in by the individual to get to the we. So how can people start? Because I, I think that would be, I suppose, the obvious question at this point. Well, the obvious... The, well, the first start for, uh, around the Enneagram, if you like, it's in one way, it can be looked on as a tool for self-observation. Mm. Whether you're a, a leader of a company or whether you're a doctor or a, 
ordinary help or, or wherever on, on the word. For instance, it, one of the first steps in alcoholism is, is the challenge to uh, sit back and take a look at yourself and say, well, this is a habit I've developed. Uh, it's, it's my choice whether I do something about it. And uh, for, for people with addictions like that, it's, it's a life and death matter. And uh, it's, a, it's the choice between living in the gutter and living in happy lives. But in, in our own civilization, considering the wealth we have compared that we've had, that other generations have had, and compared to what other people in the world at present have, we, it's probably, uh, we, we've reached a level uh, of uh, comfort in a sense, and, uh, and knowledge and knowing that we can take things forward. We have great contribution to make if we use our abilities rather than uh, getting stuck in fixed ways. So the first step would be to develop some practice of, of uh, self-reflection. The Enneagram is a tool. You can find information in books. You can, the essential Enneagram gives a good little test. But there's also, um, I, I think, the difficulty around tests, most tests, if they're worth it, will say that they can only give an indication that ultimately you have to decide what your own type is. We never come along and say you're A, B, C, D, and I would never encourage people to do that. In fact, it's a no-no. People, you know yourself better than anybody else does. So no test can tell you that. A test can give you an indication of things to think about, but ultimately you have to validate it yourself. Um, the other thing is obviously attend classes. There are many opportunities uh, to, to attend classes. My website is a simple one. It's just enneagram.ie. Um, and if you're not living near near places, if you're, I, there's lots of good work on the internet. Um, Enneagram Worldwide, that's all one word, Enneagram Worldwide, for instance, has a good set of videos of each of the types. And for each type, for example, they not only have the written explanation, but for each type, they've got four separate videos How under four different headings. Now, I don't know exact. I can't remember them exactly, but one heading might be, how do I know I'm a Mr. One, Two, Three, or whatever? Yeah. And how does this affect my relationships is number one. Might be another piece. And they're only two, three minute pieces. Uh, how this might affect my work and then the challenges, how I meet the challenges of my type. Now, I'm glad in a sense they're just short excerpts because um, you know, in, in some sense, they just highlight key patterns that can help people to identify themselves. But I'd always encourage to get involved in community, to get involved in classes with whatever class will bring them to a level of awareness and to be aware all of the time that when we come to a class, uh, regardless of what it is, whether it's about saving the world, that we have this propensity to rigidify our thinking and our feeling and in my experience that happens in every organization yeah regardless and even in organizations which have the best will in the world to serve others that unless we're taking charge of ourselves unless we're going back to this me and dealing with it and seeing uh, how this am i being rigid or am i being frozen into particular patterns of, of behavior 
life has a way of coming along and challenging us anyway, uh, because life uh, has no bounds. Uh, it has no uh, rules by which it operates. It just happens. It just is. Mm. So in your experience then, what do you think would be the single biggest benefit of the Enneagram? Because you're studying it and practicing it for a long, long time. Well, I can only speak personally, John. Yeah, of course. And see, uh, you know, other people like it. Um, I, uh, you just have to ask them. Um, personally, I think it's reduced the level of suffering um, that I uh, inflicted on myself. Mm -hmm. um, I think I've become much more tolerant of other people. So, for instance, this... I really want to thank all the number ones in the world. I, I didn't ask their permission to <laughs> give them as exemplars. But, you know, when I meet a one and I know, they, I see them getting terribly irritated or terribly anxious, I could be just, you know, <clears throat> getting annoyed, which I might have been informally. What is that person making this fuss over having this small little detail, right? You know, it's irritating, annoying, and I'm cutting myself off from them. So if I see somebody now, I come along and I say, you know, at the heart of things, these people want to make the world better. They want to have things right. And I can step a little bit closer into their world and, you know, be much more respectful, pay attention to what's important for them and say, well, look, it isn't really the end of the world if things don't arrive at noon in a sense, you know, that I'm OK with it and things will happen up and very often the number one will feel relieved to hear something like that. So I would like to think, and I hope it does with others, it allows people to become more tolerant. A lot of people say it saves their marriage because, you know, after the, after the honeymoon period and you settle down in a relationship, you wonder one day you can walk up, wake up and say, where does this person come from? They're from another planet. We're not living in the same uh, psyche any longer. Yeah. And, um, and that's true, they're very different. But in my own relationships, I love meeting people, especially family who have identified their type because I see them as being sources of learning because they have a different take on things that I don't have. I really, one of my greatest delights is to hear, well, what is your take on this? Because it is a valid take, there's nothing wrong with it. Or how would you approach this? And uh, each of these nine types gives great, great skills. You know, there's, there's one, uh, the number nine, which is very consensus seeking. They're natural team builders. They just instantly know what everyone's uh, point of view is. And they know how to bring people together almost instinctively. That is, that's their purpose. But what they do, what their own growth is, they leave themselves out of the picture completely. They completely neglect their own agenda. They're very reference to others. Mm. But friends of, of mine, you know, if there's an area where there is conflict, you can just, you have an expertise there and say, look, this is the problem going on here. How, what kind of a take would you say? Would you, would you have on it? And even the language and the way they express it is so uniquely bound around that search for consensus, for peace and harmony. It's a very valuable lesson for, for all of us. So each of the nine Enneagram types 
I, I, I mean, I love talking about this aspect, have such a huge contribution to make. You know, I've got friends who are, if you like, threes who are very into success, achieving things, getting things done, um, completing tasks, high energy, uh, that, and, and putting a good image, selling things out there. You know, you just need to go and ask one of your friends, how best do you think, give me a critique on this. How am I coming across or how's, what's the best way to complete and do this sort of thing? They're wonderful. They, on the other hand, their particular path of development is to identify how their whole sense of identity has become up, become bound with this doing kind of thing mm. and to be able to step back and see where is the human being within that area to feel their feelings and that they're more than just the, the, the doer they're, they're, they are a person inside so that's I think to me that's one of the greatest things I've got out of it is it's, it's hugely inspiring for me to see when people are going about their business and how they do it and how much I can learn from other people well, it sounds extremely interesting. And one of the key points for me that is very attractive is the fact that it does lead to a greater self-awareness, but it's not necessarily that you're being given all the answers. It's not a magic wand that you can wave. You have to do the work yourself. And I think it's only through experience that we can really learn. It's all very well being told something, but quite often it's in one ear and out the other. Whereas if we're kind of encouraged or even forced at times to experience things ourselves, that's when the real learning comes. And I think having um, looked in a bit of depth over the last couple of weeks of, at what the Enneagram is and how people go about exercising the lessons that they learn from it, I think that's the the most attractive thing for me. And again, that might be something that terrifies a lot of people because a lot of people are looking in today's consumer society where so much is disposable and everything is immediate. I think a lot of people are conditioned to go back to the paradigms we were speaking about early, earlier to being able to just, I don't know, click on maybe a PayPal link online and, and getting all the answers. But it doesn't work that way when it comes to self-exploration in my experience. And... I think that that's, that's one of the really attractive things for me, certainly. So uh, I must say, I think there's a huge amount that people can potentially gain. And I'm looking forward to uh, potentially exploring the Enneagram much further in my own life. So thank you for the insights that you've given us today, Barry. Is there anything you would like to surmise with or can you give us information on how people can look at some of the courses that are provided and the website addresses and that kind of thing as well? Yeah, well, just my own website, I, I usually give a course twice a year in the autumn and in the spring. Uh, most of the work I do is with either advanced students or with, with groups of various kinds, whether they're companies or whatever. Um, so that, 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 that website is just enneagram.ie, E-N-N-E-A-G-R-A-M.ie. Uh, the website uh, hopefully will be revamped in the next uh, few months. It's a, an old website. Now, Enneagram Worldwide gives excellent videos. Uh, Enneagramworldwide.com gives these excellent videos, four videos on each type and also explanations of the type. But I think uh, when you mentioned it's not about forcing people. Education, I suppose, means... Uh, the, comes from, from the Latin, which means draw out what is already there. That we have all this information in ourselves. And going back to what Socrates used to say, he said, you find the truth when people are held and supported 
and that there's no right or wrong about this, that we are just human beings and we do get scared, we do get angry, we do get frightened, but that that's part of what it is to be human. But what we as human beings can do for each other is to be able to hold and support others when they are in those states. And it is, it is in that state that we, we grow and develop as human beings, you know. I have the power, you have the power, we have the power. Barry Hearn, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining me on Alchemy Radio. Yeah, and don't forget, we do have the power. So if we don't like something, we have to be the start of the change we want to see happening in the world. Fine, fine words to finish on. Barry, thanks a million. Thanks a million, John. Alchemy Radio.
enjoyed this week's episode of Alchemy Radio remember we rely on donations to keep the show in its current free and ad free format and are extremely grateful for any and all help that you can offer we put no fixed cost in your donations and every little helps so for example if you could spare even the price of a McDonald's bag of french fries not that any of us would ever dream of eating such a thing every month well that would go a long long way towards keeping us afloat and indeed because of our bandwidth and server costs The more donations we get, basically the more shows we can do and we increase the frequency accordingly. Uh, Thank you to everybody who has donated over the last few weeks. Our donate button is on the website and all support, as I said, is hugely appreciated. Our next guest will be Derek Henry and Derek will be talking about toxins and how to heal the body with food. So until then, I have the power, you have the power, we have the power. Alchemy Radio. Alchemy Radio. Analyze. Are you tuned in? Are you tuned in?